0: Welcome to Critical Window, a podcast from the Alliance for Excellent Education that explores the rapid changes happening in the body and the brain during adolescence and what these changes mean for educators, policymakers, and communities. This week on Critical Window, we're learning how sports and coaching influence the social, emotional, and academic development of students and what educators and coaches can learn from one another. Our guest today is Jennifer Brown Lerner. She's the Deputy Director for Aspen Institute's Sports and Society Program, where she's responsible for strategy, management, and community work. Previously, she was the Assistant Director for Policy and Partnership for the National Commission on Social, Emotional, and Academic Development, where she managed the Policy Subcommittee and the Partners Collaborative. Prior to Aspen, Jennifer served as the Deputy Director of the American Youth Policy Forum. She also worked as a classroom teacher, a coach, and a communications officer. Jennifer received her bachelor's from the University of Pennsylvania and her master's from Teachers College, Columbia University. Welcome to the show, Jennifer.
1: Thanks, Hans. Glad to be here.
0: So let's start by talking about your work at Aspen's National Commission on Social, Emotional, and Academic Development. Throughout this conversation, for those listening, we'll be referring to the, commission, uh, the National Commission on Social, Emotional, and Academic Development as SEED or the Commission for short. So uh, for those not familiar. Could you provide an overview of Aspen's history and programs, as well as the work, the research base, and the participants in the SEED commission?
1: Um, So the commission uh, was a policy initiative of the Aspen Institute, which is a well-recognized, convening organization driven by values-based leadership. The commission uh, was comprised of 25 prominent voices across education, business, philanthropy, military, and the government. Um, And it had six advisory bodies, which were critical to developing its final recommendations. Um, And those six advisory bodies included uh, research scientists, educators, young people, parents, our partners, and our funders. Um, And so to understand the commission's work, I think it's really important to start where the commission started. Um, And the first thing that they did was spend a lot of time with each of their advisory bodies. And the one that became the foundation for where their recommendations stand, and how they move forward where they research scientists. Um, so to understand the research scientists advising the commission, you need to understand that they tapped voices not just from traditional education research, um, but from neuroscience, from psychology, from biology, from sociology, from history, a real range of um, academicians um, and, and researchers who grounded the commission in a couple of foundational learnings which were essential um, for how the commission shaped and framed its final recommendation and its communication to the broader field. Um, The first and the point that I think stands in front of all of the other things that we heard um, was we need to get away from this confusing terminology that exists in the space around social-emotional learning or um, social-emotional and academic development and really understand a couple of pretty simple things about learning. First, learning is social and emotional and cognitive. Um, And what that means is that um, there are three categories of foundational skills which are essential to learning, whether it be academic learning, um, whether it be on-the-job learning, whether it be uh, learning at home, these are the elements that are just foundational to learning. And I'm just going to take a minute to go through those because I think they're critical to this conversation. So the first is around cognitive skills and competencies. And these are the underlying ability to pay attention, to stay focused, to plan, to organize, to goal set, and to solve problems. The second is social and interpersonal skills. This is about your relationships with people. This is about how you read social cues, navigate social situations, how you negotiate conflict, and how you work on a team. And the final category around emotional skills and competencies is not only how you regulate and manage your own emotions, but how you cope with frustration, how you deal with stress, and how you demonstrate respect and empathy for others and have the ability to take their perspective as well. So if these are our foundational skills, there's a couple of other things that are also really critical to understand. One, these skills develop over time and can be taught and learned. Um, This idea of, um, that they are caught and taught is really important. We need to think about that. Learning happens in relationships, and this is a really critical point um, that all of these skills um, happen based upon a young person's relationship with their environment, with their educators, or with their peers. And then finally, we have some research to demonstrate that social, emotional, and cognitive development, or an emphasis on social, emotional, cognitive development, can offset some of the impacts of
0: trauma. So then what what did the SEED Commission tell us about the impact of social-emotional learning on the development of youth and their academic performance?
1: Yeah, so I think the Commission put forth a really important theory of change that focuses on how learning settings impact a student's experience, and then move us towards a broader set of desired student outcomes. When we think about learning settings, we one, we have to think about all of the places and spaces that young people grow and develop, and I'm looking forward to talking about all those places with you later on. We need to think about, in those places in which young people learn in relationship, do do they feel safe, supported, and feel like they belong? Are they being explicitly taught the core skills which we know are foundational to learning in addition to the critical academic content that we want them to master? And do they have opportunities to practice those skills or demonstrate mastery of those skills, both their social, emotional, cognitive, and academic skills? When we create learning settings that are address these three elements, We see a different type of student experience, one in which young people are able to take more leadership roles, where they're able to take more ownership in their learning, and obviously also see more engagement in their own learning. And finally, because they are um, more engaged, more willing, more ready to learn, we are seeing improvement in outcomes across four domains. We're seeing improvement in academic outcomes, both in K-12 as well as in higher education in terms of increased number of students prepared to be successful in higher education. We are seeing easier ability for young people to transition into careers because they have more of those core workforce ready or employer desired skills. And then finally, and most critical at this point, point in time, we are seeing young people that are more willing, more engaged, and more desire to participate in both community life and civic life. And that makes me hopeful for our country moving forward.
0: Thank you. So you mentioned earlier that the commission had a youth advisory group. Yep. Uh, what did that youth advisory group convey about their social emotional development?
1: Uh, we were really lucky in that we had um, a group of about 20 young people that uh served as advisors to the commissioners, um, and they were very generous with their time and their personal stories. Um, And uh, what they did uh, in the process of the commission is articulate what they called a call to action, um, what they needed uh, from their learning environments in order to be successful. And I'm just going to read their four critical points because I think they're well said um, and in the voices of the young people that were involved with the commission. Um, We need schools to be safe with a strong sense of community. We need to learn and be evaluated as whole students and whole people. We need our teachers and educators to know us and understand us. We need our families and communities to be embraced as partners in our learning. I think those four statements are really simple, but I think really reflect uh, what young people want out of their learning experience. Um, and are really guidepost for how we can shape uh, youth-centered, youth-driven uh, learning experiences.
0: Yeah, simple but powerful. Really Absolutely. gets to the point about what, what they want, and I think it's a, a message for all the adults in the room to, to listen more to, to the young people and hear what, what, they, what they would like out of their learning experience. Yeah. So as, as you know, at all for Ad, we focus on the developmental period of adolescence. Were there some findings that the SEED Commission had regarding adolescent age students that were different compared to other age groups?
1: I'm not the expert on in any way, shape, or form, uh, but I'm really thrilled uh, that uh, our set of advising research scientists uh, began some of this really hard work. Um, and so as part of the effort of the commission, they did um, articulate a developmental progression of the skills in the social Emotional and cognitive categories, and they demonstrated what they look like or what are the most critical skills to be developed in different age bands. And so, one thing that you can notice in the progression towards adolescence is the critical role that identity plays in the development of these skills. And so, both a young person's own sense of self and the identity that one, and the identity that one believes others perceive you to have. I think the interplay of this idea of how you view yourself and how you think the world is viewing you is really critical to how, how young people think about their own set of skills, at, at particularly in this phase of adolescence. Mm-hmm.
0: And that bears out, uh, you know, in, in what we've put together, too, in our work, that identity, as, as you said, is this critical domain for, for adolescence. And not that identity development isn't happening throughout the lifespan, but it, it is really happening in that period for a variety of reasons. I don't know if you want to add something No, I mean,
1: I think that's right. I mean, obviously, at all points of time, you sort of do have a sense of self. But I think, you know, what we're seeing is at this point in adolescence is that uh, this acute awareness of sense of self that is both internal and external, how you view yourself and how you perceive to be viewed by the world really shapes how you interact with the environment that you're in. And that environment involves not only your peers, but adults in a variety of different roles within your family, within your community, and how that impacts your overall ability for learning is really critical. And we mentioned trauma earlier and where do those, where's the interplay of trauma and identity in this adolescent phase of life that we probably, that we know we haven't fully explored yet, I think is a, a really interesting area for future research.
0: Absolutely. Here we have a fourth, oh, we're report coming out of the Alliance that talks a lot about this uh, this issue of identity development ad- identity development adolescence so uh, if you 're interested you can go to our site and learn more about that when that comes out and you also can go obviously to the commission their resources to learn more about this issue so the seed commission has ended uh, so you 're no longer there and you 're now working with Aspen's sports and Society program can you just explain what the sports and society program does what they focus on and what about their work intrigued you and, and led you to join their team following the end of the Seed Commission?
1: The Aspen Institute Sports and Society Program is about a five-year-old program at the Aspen Institute. It launched with focus and emphasis on reimagining youth sports, particularly the experience of young people aged 12 and under in this country are founding executive director really felt like we had lost the ability for true play in in young people and that our sports culture had become obsessed with winning. And so the program launched with an effort to listen to communities across the country and find out what they felt like were the critical actions that can be taken to ensure that all young people have access to high-quality sports opportunities as a mechanism to build thriving communities. And so the program launched an initiative called Project Play, which is eight plays for eight sectors, which are eight really big ideas focused on eight very different sectors that have impact over youth sports. And our job as, as the Sports and Society Program is really to compel others to action, to think about what are these really big ideas and how do we build tools and resources and provide the information and tell the great stories of what's going on so that we can truly increase opportunities for access to high-quality sports. Why did I want to do this? Well, first and foremost, I'm a mom of two active boys um, who are embracing one of our really big ideas around sports sampling. And both of my kids are multi-sport athletes, which is exhausting as a parent, but super exciting to see. Each of my kids now in as fourth and fifth graders are on separate teams, which of course makes for a lot more carpool, but really has given them this unbelievable opportunity for them to grow and develop, to interact with young people in our neighborhood as well as across the whole city. And I really see sports as a place that my own children have been given an opportunity to be successful. Um, but also to fail effectively. And so when I think about um, social, emotional, and academic development, I really think about sports as this critical space in which they get to both see modeled and practice this core set of competencies across the social, emotional, and cognitive domains in, in a way in which they actually are in charge. Yeah, the coach is telling them what to do. Um, But, you know, as they're entering uh, the upper elementary years and really sort of into early adolescence, they have a unique opportunity for voice and choice on the sports field that they don't have in the classroom that is really allowing them to come into their own. But I would be remiss if I didn't take this time to plug uh, the joint project that the commission and the sports and society program did. We together worked on a project that dove deep into the research around the role that coaches play in developing social-emotional skills. And we produced a great publication called Calls for Coaches, which lists seven calls for coaches along with very specific practices that coaches can adopt to create the culture and environment for uh, the development of social-emotional
0: skills. Sounds like a great resource.
1: It's a fabulous <laughs> resource, and I encourage you all to download it from the Aspen Institute website. And the best part of the resource is is the back page is a tear-off for coaches to put on their clipboard or keep in their practice bag of all of the practices. And so it's a real how-to guide of small things that you can do at the beginning of each practice, at the beginning of the, each game, or at the end of the season, just at different points um, across the lifespan of a, of a sports team to really be more intentional about the development of social emotional
0: skills. You were talking about this, this idea of sports being this other place to, for this development of social emotional cognitive skills. I find oftentimes when I'm talking to folks about students learning and development that the conversation is really limited to what's happening in the schoolhouse. Uh, So, how how does your work in sports, in the sports and society program, push us to reconsider how other spaces outside of the schoolhouse uh, influence youth development?
1: Yeah, so that's a really great question. And so, the first thing I would say is that I'm really lucky in that one of the cornerstones of the commission was really expanding this idea of where and when learning happens. And so the commission heard early on from all of its advisory groups that if we were narrow-minded and thinking that learning only happens in classrooms, in schools, that we were missing this incredible opportunity for alignment around the critical skills that, that are essential to how learning happens. Um, and so... The commission came out with a fabulous graphic which puts young people and their families at the center because we have to think about families as the first learning experience and first educators for every young person, but also named all the places and spaces that learning happens. Those formal spaces within schools and those informal spaces within schools, but then how those informal spaces within schools bleed into all of these extracurricular and supplemental and other places in which young people grow and develop. And so while sports might be a unique arena, it's part of a broad array of places in which young people learn, grow, and develop. And it has its own language and culture that is unique but i think in this sense of the foundational skills for how learning happens that we're going to see over time more alignment between all of all of those places and so I mean, I think the other thing to think about is the dynamic between uh, sports and and education in classrooms as well. You could view sports as the ultimate performance assessment. Every game, every practice is really an opportunity for young people to put on display a core set of physical skills, uh, physical as well as social emotional skills that they're learning. And there's instantaneous feedback right there, a win or a loss. But I also think it's a really important opportunity in which uh, young people can uh, get uh, create a continuous feedback loop um, with their coaches, with other athletes, um, to really think about how do we, in the process, begin to make adjustments to what we're doing, which is uh, what we're hoping we'd also do in the classroom. And so, I think there's unbelievable opportunity to think about sports as a as a place in which uh, young people can take ownership of their own learning but also what can we learn from the practices of coaches to inform what educators do a topic i hope we'll talk about in a little bit
0: uh which we will and <laughs> and uh, so then wh- why are sp- sports an appropriate place to be talking about social emotional learning and development
1: yeah so hans this is my favorite question to throw back at you <laughs> um, and you know i shared what i think my own children are getting um out of sports but I'm going to make an assumption that perhaps at one point in time that you were part of a team I,
0: I did yeah and so you're asking me why I think yeah, it's yeah
1: so I mean talk about think about back to your own sports experience and um, yeah. you know share a little bit about sure. that and share what you got out of it and then maybe we can
0: yeah I mean absolutely I mean if I think a lot of people who have played sports probably can relate to this but it's you know especially when you get older and you're you know, in your middle school high school years it's a place where you find a lot of close friends. Um, then you also find uh, adult mentors. So I, I, one in particular, I think of. I had a soccer coach uh, when I was in middle school named Jim Schrott, um, who just was one of these, just these people I looked up to. Like the way he carried himself, the way he interacted with us, he treated us like adults, and he created this environment where um, we, you know, we, we respected one another, and we worked hard for one another, and we were willing to kind of put the time and effort in. Uh, to be the best version of ourselves so it it was and he he just was an excellent role model and he continued to be somebody throughout my life and into college and and beyond that i i look to as like somebody who really was able to just be a leader of people um, and also just to kind of be the type of person i would want to be when i'm working with other folks whether they're younger or older so certainly that and then there are other coaches i had throughout whether it was you know track and field and cross country later on but but certainly I, i can in everything that you're talking about um i yeah you know, I, I can relate to it in different ways and i've thought uh thought back to my own experiences so definitely something that it seems appropriate to be talking about this topic there because it's it, it's a space where you are learning um how to just work with people and how how to be successful in that regard
1: yeah and i mean i think this is you know why we've separated all these places and spaces that kids young people you know learn grow and develop is Silly, you know, you gained so much from your own experience on the soccer field, and you mentioned other teams that you you were a part of. You know, we really need to blend and and sort of bleed into the ideas and the the culture that was created in all of these places in which young people, as you just articulated, you know, feel supported, encouraged, you know, and can can continue to experiment with their leadership and their their sense of self, this dichotomy of sports versus school seems like, you know, the antithesis to this idea of social, emotional, and academic development as the foundation for how we learn.
0: So then let's talk a little bit about what we, we've, throughout the conversation, has been brought up about adult role models. We know adolescence is a period, uh, talking again about this focus that we have, the alliance in adolescence, it's a period um, of changing social dynamics and there's an increased prevalence of peer relationships. What is the importance then of having adult role models uh, like coaches in an adolescent's life?
1: I mean, I think, Hans, you did an incredible job of articulating that before when you described one of your, you know, the coaches that had the most impact on your life. I mean, this was a person who modeled behavior that you too wanted to carry through in in your life, not only as a young athlete, but, you know, as a student, as a future employee. Um, and so I think that there's a different dynamic with the coach-athlete relationship than there is with a student-teacher relationship. Um, John Urschel, um, who is a former NFL player, um, who is now a PhD student in mathematics, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times on May 11th, said math teachers should be more like football coaches. And he really talked about how he had a dream of earning a scholarship to a Big Ten school to play football, even though he was scrawny 220 pounds um, and played on the offensive line, he said that his football coaches were the ones that really encouraged and supported him. They spent the extra hours making videos with him or watching video with him or filling out applications. Um, And he did, for those of you that don't know his story, um, he did get a scholarship to Penn State. He majored in mathematics, he played for the Ravens for about three seasons, and subsequently has gone back and is a PhD candidate. But what he's saying is that he never had a math teacher in high school that encouraged him to explore math or to see math as the, his pathway to greatness the way that his football coaches did. And so what does that say about the dynamic between educators and their students? That um, they, are, they don't feel compelled to encourage young people to follow their dreams, and I don't say this in any way to be derogatory towards educators because I think they're facing unbelievable demands and pressure um, to get students to perform. But if we truly believe that learning happens in relationships, I think that we need to give all educators in the classroom on the sports field the time, the tools, and the opportunity to cultivate the fire and passion within within each student, which only happens when you have the opportunity to build a relationship.
0: Do historically underserved students, and for those listening, uh, when I'm talking about historically underserved students, I'm talking about low-income students or students of color, do they have the the same opportunities as their peers to be involved in sports and have access to good coaching?
1: Yeah, so this is a great question, and I think it's tied up in a couple of issues um, that I hope we have a little bit of time to discuss, but maybe our a whole other podcast. Um, so, you know, first in terms of this access issue, we don't have great data in terms of the f- sports facilities that are available nationally. We've got some really great and interesting data around participation rates. Um, and one thing or one troubling trend that we are seeing right now is that for girls in rural and urban areas, which often you know, can be considered under-resources. We're seeing a decline in participation. Um, and this is not the same for suburban girls, which we can make some assumptions about the access that they have to facilities. You know, but I think, uh, the decline in participation in sports is, uh, linked overall to we're seeing a decrease in support for overall for supplemental, um, activities, whether it be decrease in investment in after school, um, in arts, in, STEM opportunities, um, I think that's a trend that, that we have. Um, I also think that there's, um, two other points that I want to put out there that are related in terms of access in underserved communities, um, that are worth, uh, exploring and perhaps not today, but just food for thought for listeners. Um, first, sports are often seen as a ticket to higher education, um, for young, for young people, particularly young people from low income families. Um, that this is their only low, I would say low and middle income families, that this is their only opportunity um, to access higher education. Um, And so I think that there's, um, particularly in this moment, and we're seeing, you know, massive admission scandals and um, concerns about uh, impacts on student athletes, uh, we need to have a serious conversation about whether or not sports is the only access to true financial aid in higher education. The second issue is um, around availability of sports. Um, I think that there's a set of sports which are often referred to as elite sports, which are not available um, at every school. Um, And what does this mean uh, for young people from low-resource communities? Um, Does this make sense? Is this the right way to go? Um, Or should we be thinking about equal access to all sports for all kids? And what should the parameters be around uh, what are all sports? Is it every sport that's in the Olympics? Um, is it the national sport of any country um, or any community? I think these are the things that we have to think about and struggle with when we think about increasing access to high-quality sports.
0: And, and could you clarify for a moment when you said elite sports earlier? What, what do you mean? Give it, if you can give a couple of examples. Yeah.
1: So I mean, I think uh, I mean uh, people often refer refer to swimming as an elite sport yeah. because the access to um, a pool or a pool that you can train in. Um, is not isn't available to everyone, but then you could also think about um, sports which are um, unique to um, uh, certain climates or certain areas. For example, bobsled. Um, you know, uh, ironically, there are a significant number of bobsledders from the state of Florida, um, but that is because um, they often recruit uh, track and field athletes uh, to join uh, bobsled training teams. So, I mean, I think, you know, uh, particularly uh, space-intensive sports are often re- viewed as um, elite sports because it's it's hard to get access to those spaces. Um, uh, you know, a single field that can have multi-use um, for baseball, for soccer, for football, for track and field, you know, may, means that um, it, there are more sports available, but courts um, or pools or Um, Equipment-heavy sports uh, like bobsled, you know, are examples of can often be viewed as elite sports.
0: So you mentioned in a previous conversation that we had that effective teaching and coaching are grounded in the same science. And you started talking about that uh, just now and throughout this conversation. You mentioned as we were talking that there's a disconnect, though, in the language that coaches and educators use to talk about their work. Could you elaborate on what you mean by this this disconnect and this idea of using the same science and then how you and your team uh, at Aspen are working to bridge this communication gap between coaches and educators?
1: Yeah, so this is a great question, and it really goes back to the piece that um, the commission jointly wrote with the Sports and Society program. And um, when we put this framework out here, which focused on the social, emotional, and cognitive skills as foundational to learning, that made a ton of sense to me coming from the K-12 education space. Um, we got a lot of blank stares when we shared it with coaches. Yeah, they really appreciated the practices, but this framework that we built um, around these foundational skills, they sort of, their eyes just glazed over. I mean, I think they, uh, you know, I think we oftentimes feel siloed in K-12 education or education more generally um, around the terminology we use. Um, you often see a disconnect between the language that educators use when they communicate with parents and that they aren't 100% sure what they're talking about. No different here in, in, the, in um, sports and education. Interestingly, our framework made a ton of sense to school-based coaches, but for community-based coaches, the idea of social, emotional, and cognitive skills sort of was like well beyond anything that they had known. They said, oh, you know, I went to this training and they said I have to develop character. Or, oh, I have to develop... Um, Uh, purpose driven athletes. And in reality is, is we're all talking about the same thing. We just cannot have any consensus around, you know, naming what these specific skills are. But, um, you know, at its core, we're really trying to give young people the skills, knowledge and ability that they need to interact with others. Regulate their own emotions and, and pay attention and set goals. And so I think we're getting, when we get into more specific skills, uh, we see more alignment between coaches and educators. But um, a lot of our wonky terminology that is uh, unique to the K 12 space uh, doesn't resonate in other spaces.
0: So you've talked about throughout the conversation, uh, but Let's let's wrap a bow on this idea of what teachers can learn from coaches. And then what coaches can learn from teachers about building strong social, emotional, and academic skills in their players and students.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think I'm going to harp back on this point that I've said throughout the conversation. I think at the core of learning is the relationship. and. Um one thing that great coaches do is really focus in on that individual relationship with each player and they also create a space and environment and a culture that honors the relationship that others have with uh, others players have with each other. I don't think that teachers have the ability, um the time, the space to focus in on that in their classrooms because they have so many different demands, but I would argue that that is the most critical piece that they need to do. In the commission, uh, we were lucky enough to visit tons of classrooms across the country. Um, And one of the things that still strikes me is that we were sitting down with an educator from Boston, I think, who said to us, my job is to teach students math. I have no way in which I can teach them math if I don't spend the first two weeks building a relationship, and building the culture that I want in my classroom. I never once opened a textbook. I never asked them to do a worksheet. I spend two weeks just on that. All of his students had gone on to be very successful, many of them taking AP courses and great scores on standardized tests. I think what we need to take away from uh, the sports space is how critical that relationship is to success. But similarly, I think that um, educators do an incredible job of naming the skills that they want students to develop. And that's not a strength of coaches. And so they, I think there's a real opportunity to build a bridge between um, what educators do really well in terms of planning and articulating for young people and how Coaches create um, relationships and environments which are truly young people-centered. And then we can just see an explosion of growth of these core skills across all
0: the places and spaces young people learn. So then what is the role of school leaders, superintendents and, and principals uh, in this work that, that you're doing? Do they, do they have a role in providing these type of uh, sports experience to students or creating this collaboration? What, what should they be doing? Yeah, so that's a great question.
1: And, you know, first and foremost, I think everybody has a role, right? Like, we all have a role, no matter who we are, in creating the places that are creating all of the places and spaces which young people grow and develop. But principals and district leaders in particular, I think, have a couple of critical roles. One, um, they are decision makers at the district and school level in terms of where resources are spent. And they can't assume um, that uh, exclusively pouring resources into the classroom at the expense of all the supplemental opportunities, sports included, is a go- is a great idea. So they have to be brave um, in continuing to allow for resources. It doesn't necessarily have to be dollars. They could think about partnerships that move folks in that direction. But I also think that as school leaders and district leaders, that they truly are the leaders of the culture. Um, and so they, too, have to articulate this prioritization of all of the places and spaces in which young people learn. I mean, I think about, as an athlete myself, how, particularly a high school athlete, how cool I thought it was when the principal showed up at any one of my games. Um, and I think it's small things like that. Or to, or classroom teachers showing up. I mean, this is uh, supporting young people in all the places that they grow and develop.
0: So then what do you see, and this and this will be our last question today. What do you see as the next steps for implementing large-scale policies and practices that bolster students access to effective sports programs and continue to integrate these programs into the schoolhouse?
1: Yeah, so this is a really great question and I think that there's a lot of real interesting opportunities that are uh, that are happening. For example, the Department of Health and Human Services is currently leading the development of the National Youth Sports Strategy. Um, and so this is the strategy at the federal level that really will articulate what the federal government can do to ensure more access to high quality opportunities for sport. And they've had their first listening session and they will have a draft out, um, sometime this summer. So for any of your listeners that are in tune, that are, um, that care about this, encourage you to comment on the, on the forthcoming draft. Um, In addition, Tom Ferry, the executive director of the Aspen Sports and Society Program, uh, published a piece in the New York Times um, about two weeks ago that described uh, Norway's children's right to sport, um, which is a commitment that that country has made around uh, increasing access to sports opportunities. It's both a financial commitment and a human capital commitment, um, which has been uh, now aligned with Norway's unbelievable sweep of medals at the Winter Olympics. But is there a role for the federal government or state and local governments to make um, a commitment to young people that they will have access to high quality sports opportunities? And what does that commitment look like is a really interesting discussion for us to be having as a country right now.
0: Thank you so much for our conversation today. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Our guest is Jennifer Brown Lerner. She is the deputy director for the Aspen Institute Sports and Society Program. Seriously responsible for the strategy, management, and community work. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you for listening to Critical Window, the Alliance for Excellent Education's podcast on how the research from the science of adolescent learning can inform middle and high school design and the work of school leaders. Tell your colleagues, friends, and families about Critical Window, and please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to make sure you catch future episodes. This podcast was produced by Aharon Charnov, Hans Herman, and Robin Harper. To learn more about the science of adolescent learning, visit all 4 slash S-A-L.